0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. In 1993, Antonis Mokas left his job as the president of the National University of Bogota, to run for mayor. What's interesting about Mocus is not the transition he made uh, from being an academic to being a politician. What's interesting about him are the things that he did to get him there. He became a sort of celebrity in 1993 because as university president, he was dealing uh, with a number of students demonstrating and interrupting assemblies. And so one particular day, the students at this assembly were being particularly rowdy. They were uh, not listening to people's calls for them to be quiet, not listening for people uh, telling them to settle down. Uh, And so the president of the university, a PhD in mathematics, quieted the crowd with one simple action. He stood up and mooned the students. Everybody started laughing and as if by some sort of miracle, the crowd all settled down. This sort of weird and wild uh, antics wouldn't stop uh, when he left the university presidency For obvious reasons, and became mayor of the town. Once he became mayor, uh, the city of Bogota had incredibly uh, huge problems with traffic and traffic fatalities, and the traffic police were notoriously corrupt. So here's what he did. He fired the entire traffic enforcement department. He immediately offered them all their jobs back on this condition. They would have to wear new uniforms, and they would have to go to mime school. 400 of these traffic enforcement officers decided that they would, take, they would take that job back. And so a few weeks later, flooding out and fanning out into the streets of Bogota were men and women in black and white striped shirts, red berets with their faces painted white, who instead of writing tickets, would actively mock you if you broke traffic or parking laws. <laughs> During his time as mayor, traffic fatalities went down by 50% with his mime squad. Mayor Malkus understood something. Well, he understood a lot of things like people would rather be mocked than pay a fine. But what he really understood, what he really got was that the traditional levers of power and safety aren't the only ones that worked. He used creativity and imagination to solve problems in the city of Bogota. In fact, if you remember, 1993 is still a time where the cartels were largely functioning as the government in Colombia. And he comes along, a gawky college professor with his army of unarmed mimes, and stands down the cartels in Bogota. He, he uses humor and his willingness not to take himself so seriously to chase these cartels out. We love stories like this. We love these sort of stories that remind us uh, that power and security aren't the highest goals of our lives. And we need stories like this. We need stories like this to remind us that power and security are not the virtues we are after in the Christian life. Because the Christian life is one that gives up power. The Christian life is one that lets go of security as we follow the path of Jesus. That's a huge part of what Advent is. It's a huge part of this time of the year that we're celebrating. Jesus, the God of the world, gave up power, subjecting himself to humanity. He left behind the security of heaven in order to come and dwell among us. And so at Advent, we remember that. At Advent, we remind ourselves to follow that path. And as we grasp this idea, we need to be captured afresh by the awesome glory of what Jesus did through his incarnation. To be stunned once more that the God of heaven left heaven. To come down. And dwell with us to live among his creation. And as we dwell on that, as that truth seeps into us, Lord willing, it will unleash sort of creativity and imagination that only an incarnate God can unleash in our lives so that we can love others with that same level of creativity and imagination. And so this morning, we're going to look at a passage from Isaiah as we will through this entire Advent season, and we're going to see how Isaiah predicted uh, what was going to happen with Jesus, but even more, uh, see the beautiful picture that he paints of what Jesus' coming means. So if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me as I read the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 2. The word of the Lord that Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword in, against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. City Church is the word of God, written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Isaiah 2 is the first hopeful thing that the prophet has had to say as he opens up his book. Isaiah chapter 1 is all the prophet calling the people of Israel, specifically the people of Judah and Jerusalem, out for the ways that they are sinning. The northern kingdom is already a failed state. It's already on the brink of collapse and the people are going to fall to the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem, is on the brink of the same thing. They're about to be conquered by the rising powers all around them. And so the king of Judah had gone on tour, except this wasn't a sort of Taylor Swift, three nights in every city, selling out tickets everywhere he went. Uh, Rather, this was the king of Judah trying to sell out. He was going to all the kings and kingdoms around them, begging for help, begging for security, begging for power. The problem is God had told them, had told Israel that he would be their protector. They don't need the chariots of Egypt to protect them from the Assyrians. We just read about that as we studied Exodus. But the king goes anyway. And so Isaiah, throughout the first chapter, calls the king and all of the people to repentance for the ways that they are seeking this power, seeking the security from someone other than him but in chapter two, he takes a different angle. In chapter two, he goes about it a little bit of a different way. Instead of telling them all the ways that they're wrong, he paints a picture of what will be, a picture of what is to come. One day, Israel won't have to beg for help from others. One day, Mount Zion will be the highest of mountains. Now, if you were with us this summer, as we talked about the different Psalms, uh, you'll remember that Mount Zion isn't even the tallest mountain in the city of Jerusalem. Mount of Olives, which is just a mile away, is taller than Mount Zion. But this is the prophet's and the poet's way of telling us that it will be the most significant place. In the latter days, Mount Zion is going to be the most significant location, more important than Mount Olympus, more important than the seven hills of Rome. It's going to be the place where God rules the nations. And as this tallest mountain, Isaiah says that the nations will flow to it. Now, you guys know, I'm not very good at math, and I'm not very good at science. But here's something I do know with a degree of certainty. Rivers don't flow up mountains. Rivers flow down mountains. And yet the picture that Isaiah paints for us is that Mount Zion will be the greatest of mountains and that the nations will stream up it, that the rivers will flow upward. In Isaiah's vision, the nations from around the planet come to Zion. This is the exact opposite of what the people had been experiencing. The people had been experiencing security and their search flowing out of Zion as they tried to get treaties with another nation's. But God is going to reverse that flow. He's going to change that dynamic. And the thing that is ultimately going to change that dynamic is the incarnation of Jesus. That should be instructive for us as Christians today. We don't need to search for security or chase power. Rather, because that is the way that normal rivers flow. That's the way our culture around us, the direction that it heads in. But if we think about the resurrection, if we think about God becoming flesh, about the God of heaven deciding to come to earth as a human, if we can believe that, we can start to believe that rivers can flow up mountains. We can begin to see a hill in Jerusalem as greater than Mount Everest. I know know that everybody loves the part that I read later on about beating the swords into plowshares, and we'll get there, okay? We'll get there, but before we get there, you have to see this first because the beating of the swords into plowshares begins with God's name being lifted up, the story of the incarnation, God coming down to dwell with us, giving up power, giving up security in order to accomplish our redemption. When we have the faith to believe that, we can start to see the world with new eyes. We can see the world like Isaiah is seeing the world, where a small hill is a great mountain and where rivers flow upwards. When you look at the way that Christianity has flourished on every continent, the eyes of the faith can begin to see rivers flowing upward. That's what Isaiah wants the people to see. That's where he wants us to start, a fresh reminder of the glory and goodness of God. But the glory and goodness of God is just the starting point because as these nations begin to stream up this mountain, as they begin to flow upward, they're looking for something. Unlike Israel, who's going out looking for power and security, that's not what these nations are looking for. They're going and showing up to learn who God is. And what are his ways? The way it's phrased, the come, let us go up, is the whole big idea of the passage. And then the learning and the walking in the ways is the sort of hows and nuts and bolts. It's kind of like uh, when you talk about going on vacation. If you ask me about a vacation I'm going to take, I'm going to say, I'm going to go on vacation and I'm going to eat at this restaurant and I'm going to see this site. And then I'm going to go eat at this restaurant because that's pretty much what I plan my vacations around right? The big idea is that I'm going on vacation. The details are where I'm eating. In the same way, the big idea is, let us go up to the, let us be with God. Let us be with him. What does that mean? Well, it's going to mean that I need to learn his ways. Well, it's going to mean that I need to walk in those ways that he instructs us. People from all around, all the nations are streaming up this mountain, desiring to learn who God is, to walk in his paths. This passage has been a part of the Advent readings of the church for over a thousand years because of this picture that it gives us. Not just to be amazed at the incarnation, but to begin to walk in its paths, to see how people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue are doing the same. And as we follow in those footsteps, as we live out the pattern of incarnation in our lives, what it begins to look like is us keeping the law of God. Now, don't get it twisted because your mind wants to swap the order right there. Your mind wants to say, ah, yes, I'll keep the law. Therefore, I'll be living like the incarnation. No, it's not what I said. It's not what the Bible teaches The Bible teaches us that Jesus goes first, that Jesus blesses us, that Jesus chooses us and makes us his children and grows our faith and then we walk in him. It is the work of God in our lives. And that came from Jesus leaving heaven. That came from the blessing that he gives us because he gave up his security, because he gave up his power. And that should be digging new channels in our minds, new ways of thinking, because I don't have to be in charge. If Jesus has already done this for me, I'm not the one who needs to be in charge. I can follow him. If Jesus has already done this for me, if he has all power in heaven and earth already given to him, my job is to trust and to follow, not to achieve and work. I can trust the one who holds time in his hands to keep my family secure. And as these new channels are formed in our minds, we begin to see new ways to live. And that's exactly what happens as these streams start to flow up the mountains, as the people stream into Jerusalem and learn the ways of Jesus, new ways of following flow out of that. He judges the world And when we hear that, we sort of have the picture of an American courtroom, sort of law and order or whatever TV procedural drama we've particularly watched. And we sort of get the idea that there's a guy or gal in a black robe who's dealing out crime punishment. But that's not the Hebrew imagination. When the Hebrew people heard about God's judgment, what they heard is that God was gonna order every sphere of life around the true and abiding justice of God. And this true and abiding justice of God results in a shocking peace where instruments of war become gardening tools, That's the picture he gives us, that this is what Jesus is going to do. Beloved, there will come a day where we will turn every tank into a tractor, where every warship will become a cargo ship. There will come a day where every gun is melted down into a slag heap that we will use to create new cast iron pans for every citizen of the world where all of the tools of violence will be destroyed and turned into tools of creation. That's where we're heading. That's what the incarnation started. A world where violence is not only not the answer, but it's not even an option. A world where the military academies are shut down and repurposed, where the Pentagon and CENTCOM become the Farmers Bureau. This is the picture that he gives us. As we begin to see who God is, see what Jesus coming in the flesh meant. As we begin to live out of that, what flows from that is a new way of seeing and living in the world. But that path is an uphill climb. It's a river flowing up the mountain and it begins with Jesus being lifted up in glory. Now, it's really interesting how often in the Gospel of John, Jesus being lifted up in glory occurs together, the lifted up and in glory part. And it's interesting because we know the story. We know that when Jesus is talking about being lifted up, he's talking about the cross. But nobody who heard Jesus say that, when he said it to Nicodemus in John 3, Nicodemus had no idea Jesus was talking about crucifixion. It was completely outside of his imagination but not Jesus. Jesus' imagination was shaped differently. For him, his death was his glory. What the world saw as defeat, Jesus claimed as victory. For Jesus being lifted up on the cross was his glory. That's why Jesus Jesus prayed exactly that. In John 17, he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those who you have given to him. It was at that moment when Jesus was lifted up on the cross that Mount Zion became the greatest of all mountains. That's when the nations began to flow to him. And we even see that as the Roman centurion professes faith in Jesus at that very moment. That's where we see in HD, the law of love, being lived out in action, where Jesus took the judgment so that you and I might receive the not guilty verdict. It was ultimately on that hill that a weapon of war and humiliation, the cross, became a tool to create a new community of gardeners, us, the church. Beloved, this is all very good news. This is all a beautiful and brilliant picture of what Advent, the coming of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus does for us. God has brought the latter days into the present. The future has come forward to the now. He has started the end. One of the things that uh, Mayor Marcus would do while he was in Colombia is if it was a particularly slow day in the office, he had hanging on his coat rack a cape that he had made. And the cape said on the back of it, super civico, which meant super citizen. And he would put this cape on and walk around the city and clean up trash or help people who needed help and do whatever it was. And he would just be a super citizen and made Bogota a better place. Beloved, Jesus is so much more than that, but along the same trajectory. Not a mayor in a cape, but God in the flesh. Not just creative solutions to local problems, but a beautiful solution to the human problem of sin in our lives and in the world. So let's walk in light of this story. Just like Isaiah called them to hear this and walk in light of what God would do in lifting up Mount Zion, in lifting up Jerusalem, let us walk in it. Let's walk in the channels that are carved into our minds by a fresh hearing of the incarnation of Jesus. Let's behold with fresh eyes the glory of God. The rivers are flowing up the mountains as we speak. His word tells us this story. It teaches us the paths of living water. And as we bask in this, as we remember what this season means, how can we reimagine creative ways to wage peace together? How can we love this world with a wildly imaginative way that Jesus has loved us How can we show that love to others? What is God calling us to as we sit on this mountain that is lifted above every other? May we leave here walking in the light of the Lord. Let's pray.